Hello, Pastor Matt here. At New Life Baptist Church, we are pleased to be able to make these resources available to the public. Our desire is that these online resources or any other resources you find online would never be used to replace you joyfully belonging to a local church body, but rather that they would be supplemental for your walk with Christ. I pray that through this sermon, the word of the living God would stir your affections for Christ, strengthen your commitment to him, and broaden your understanding of who he is. If you would, go ahead and grab your copy of God's word. Turn over to 1 John chapter 5. As I've been saying for the past two weeks, probably so many times that you don't believe me anymore, we are wrapping up our series in First John, and today will be the last um, sermon that we get from First John chapter 5, so we will be done after today. I, for one, will be sad to see this book go. I don't know about you, but I have been deeply challenged by what John has written for us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit throughout this time. It's been a challenge, but it's been really good. I don't know about you, but it's been really good to compare my life uh, against what, what Scripture has to say, to test my own assurance of salvation. To see, do I really believe? Do I really know God? You know, it's easiest, the easiest thing in the world for a pastor to do is to make the assumption that he is a Christian and that he's got it all together and that he's this, that, or the other. And First John has really helped me personally to be humble before the Lord and ask him to search me. And I hope it's had the same effect in your life. I hope that you have been brought to your knees before the Lord and searching out your heart and killing your flesh and seeing things in your own life that, that need to be done away with by the power of God. After this, our plan is to do a few. We might do Second John just in one sermon. It's very short. You can just flip the page and see it. It's just a couple of verses. Um, and then likely... We'll be doing First Peter in a couple of weeks, maybe a month or so, just so you can kind of know what to expect. So First John chapter 5, we're going to read verses 16 to the end of the chapter. If you would, stand with us again as we read God's Word. This is the Word of the living God. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death. He shall ask, and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep 
on sinning. But he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true, and we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we wrap up our time here in this letter, Lord, I pray that you would, by the power of your Spirit, send your word forth in in power and clarity. Lord, I'm able to speak audibly, but only you can speak to our hearts. I pray that your word would cut where it's necessary this morning, that it would build up where it's necessary, that it would bind and break where it's necessary, that your word would accomplish what you have set it out to do today. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. You can be seated. Throughout our time in 1 John, as one final reminder, we've been confronted with test after test after test of our salvation. A big part of that has been the sin test or the obedience test. Test how obedient you are to God's word. Throughout the time here, we've seen really challenging statements like, whoever has been born of God does not keep on sinning. That's a very challenging statement. We're confronted with one right away in verse 16, aren't we? That if anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, He shall ask, and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. What a very challenging statement that John is making here. What could he possibly be saying? I mean, let's think about this. These are his final thoughts. The final thing, few sentences that he's writing to this church, by extension, to all Christians in his, throughout redemptive history. And this is what comes to his mind, that if you see a brother committing a sin not leading to death, to pray and God will lead him life, and then this qualification that there is sin that leads to death. But not all sin does. What in the world is John talking about? What is this sin leading to death? This has been the subject of much theological discussion and debate. From this passage, there are some religions who have developed what they call mortal and venial sins. You might have heard that before. You might be familiar with that terminology. They say that there are mortal sins, that if you commit those, those are the worst kind of sins that you can commit, and they are virtually unforgivable. And then there are venial sins that are your basic everyday run-of-the-mill kind of sin that you can be forgiven for through penance and works. But the question arises from this text. 
from that type of understanding, is there any sin that God looks upon and he's okay with? Is there any sin that God would look upon and say, that's not that bad? Is there any sin that you could possibly commit in your life that God would look at it and say, hey man, it's all right. And he would set aside his holiness, his righteousness, and his justice and say, that's not so bad, it's okay. That was just a venial sin, my friend. Pucker up, lift up your your eyes, raise your head, don't be so sad. I think the obvious answer is no. All sin is despised in the eyes of God with a hatred unlike what we've ever been confronted with. We see that in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, don't we? We see how much God the Father hates sin when He pours out His own wrath on His own Son, Jesus Christ. So by all means, there is no sin that we could commit in our life and say, it's okay, at least I didn't commit the sin leading to death. So I want to say, as, as a way of introduction here to the answering this question, there ought to be no sin in your life that you would be okay with, that you would excuse away and say, well, at least it's not the sin leading to life or leading to death. At least it's not that one. I say this because John doesn't tell us what he's talking about, does he? You read what I read. He does not say, here is the sin that leads to death. It's this, that, and the other. Don't commit that sin. He doesn't say that, does he? He leaves it up to interpretation. We have to take in the whole counsel of God and consider what the Word of God teaches about sin to be able to understand what John is talking about here. There's a principle in studying Scripture that things that are not clear are interpreted and understood by things that are clear in Scripture. In other words, where Scripture very clearly teaches something, that is what interprets things that are not so clear like this verse right here. Does that make sense? Do you follow me this morning? So we don't, a second principle is that we don't allow those unclear texts, we don't build a doctrine off of unclear texts. What does that mean? Is that we can't be dogmatic or cut a, a, a really cl- clear, straight line, make it black and white, because we don't know. It's not clear. It's not clear to us. But we want to, by the grace of God, by the, the, the illumination of the Holy Spirit, consider what the Bible has to say so that we can understand what John is getting at here. And the one thing that we absolutely understand about what the Bible says about sin is that God hates sin. Anybody in here understand that? That God absolutely hates sin. There is not this ranking system in the mind of God that will say some sin is not so bad and you can wait for forgiveness and you can kind of mess with it for a little bit of time and it's okay to play with it and keep it as your pet sin. No, every bit of sin in our life is despised by 
God. You know Romans 6, 23, don't you? That the wages of sin is death. What does that mean? Not just that there is one sin. It's that the wages of sin, any sin, is death. In James, he writes that if somebody keeps all of the entire law but fails in one area, you're guilty of the whole law. You're guilty of transgressing against all of the law. That is how serious God is about sin. I want to really hammer this home because as we explore this, I don't want our flesh to say it's okay to do these things but not these things. In the life of a Christian, sin has no room in your life. None whatsoever. There's no sin that we can just excuse away. We are commanded to fight sin and to put off our flesh. A Christian's mentality is not to try to get away with sin, but to try to get away from sin. We don't want it in our life. But we do know that this sin cannot be something that has happened against you. So let's look at something that is clearly taught in Scripture about sin. We know that this is not something that is committed against you. Why do I say this? Because we can read this and then start to look at one another and how someone treated you and say they committed the sin leading to death. I don't have to pray for them because they hurt my feelings, because they did this, because they did that. This is not the case here. Luke 6.28 Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. It's Luke chapter 6, verse 28. We also know that we're taught in Scripture to pray for people who are caught up in sin. Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Listen, we want to repent, we want to turn from our sins, and we want other people to repent, and we want other people to turn from their sins. So let's not read this text and use it as a measuring stick to judge other people with and say they have committed the sin leading to death. I don't have to pray for them. I don't need to pray for them because they committed the sin leading to death. No, we want all people to repent. But listen, there is a point when God is done with a person. Did the door of the ark stay open forever? Or did eventually a day come when that door closed? Ananias and Sapphira at our last Wednesday night class, they sure seemed to have committed the sin leading to death, didn't they? They lied to the Holy Spirit and immediately they died. Do you see, there is a time when God is done with a person. Romans chapter 1. I want you to turn there. I want you to look at this with me. Romans chapter 1. There is a point when you have sinned sin unto death. See, in the original language, that's actually what it says here, is that 
it doesn't have the word committing. It says, if anyone sees his brother sinning sin, leading to death. It says, sinning sin to death is what it is literally saying in the original. So I believe that the sin leading to death here is simply sin that we can no longer repent of. It is the continued hardening of the heart against God. It's the continuance in sin, the continued rejection of God's laws, God's commands, and God's mercy to the point where God gives you over. Look at Romans chapter 1, verse 24. Therefore, God gave them up. Do you see those words? God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. Go to Hebrews chapter 10. I want you to see these for yourself this morning. I don't want you to take my word for it. But there is a point when God gives people up to their sin and allows them to just have their sin. And it is a judgment of God upon a person and a people when he allows them to be given up to their sins to keep sinning more. In other words, their punishment is more sin. Their punishment is continued death in sin. Hebrews 10, 26. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Verse 27. But a fearful expectation of judgment and the fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. A few verses later, he will say it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. To understand, God hates sin. He, he doesn't play the game that you and I play with sin. It's okay just to have a little bit of sin in my life. It's okay to just... Allow these little pet sins to linger. It's okay, I'll repent on my deathbed. It's okay, I'll do this my way. I'll find my own way to God. I don't think so. God has created this universe. He's created this world. He's created you and I. What He says goes. And what He says is that the wages of sin is death. Do we understand how serious God is about this. And there is a point that we can come to where it's done. Look at Pharaoh. It says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Romans chapter 9, you can go read that for yourself. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Because there comes a time when we are so high-handed, and so conceited and arrogant before the Lord, and so high-handed in our rebellion against God, where he says, fine, have your sin. And we've sinned the sin unto death. 
We also know that blaspheming, blaspheming the Holy Spirit is an unforgivable sin. We blaspheme the Holy Spirit. Jesus said that there is no forgiveness for that person in this life or the, next, the life to come. Jesus said, this person cannot be forgiven. And this was in the context of the Pharisees saying that Jesus was casting out demons by Beelzebub, who is the chief of demons. He's saying that Jesus, by the power of the Spirit, was casting out demons in the name of Beelzebub, by the power of a demon. Jesus said, this is this kind of sin that will not be forgiven. It's to give credit to Satan for God's work. To blaspheme the Holy Spirit. And there also comes a time when we're just living a lifestyle of sin. And it's up. Time is up. How do we know when that comes? We don't. We have no idea. Is today promised? Is tomorrow promised? Is next week promised? You don't know when the Lord will close the door on your life and say, that's enough. You've tested my patience long enough. And he calls you to account now in eternity. It is a weighty thing to feel. It's a weighty thing for us to understand and to grasp. John is saying, if you see people committing sin, pray for them so that God would give them life. But if they're committing the sin unto death, I'm not saying you should pray for that. But do you and I ever know when a person has crossed that line? No, we don't. And it is not for you and I to judge. A word of encouragement if you're here this morning wondering if you have sinned that sin unto death, I would be encouraged by the fact that you care. It shows that there's life there. If you're wondering, if you're wrestling, if it worries you, have I done that? Flee to Christ. Flee, fall upon Christ in faith. There is grace aplenty for you and I. But eventually, there comes this time. And that serves as a precursor of God's judgment. It's a display of His holy wrath. Now with that in mind, let's go back to our text. As I said a bit ago, the original says, if you see someone sinning sin unto death, when you see a brother sinning sin, don't talk about them to other people. Pray about them. Don't go and run their name through the mud and say, can you believe so-and-so? Did you see so-and-so? You get in the group chat and you post screenshots and you make fun of and pray about them. This is John's final commands to us. Is don't talk about them. Pray about them. Why? You remember from our section last week that when we pray, we are heard. God hears us. He hears our prayers. So what better to pray than for life for our brother and sister? Lord, since you hear me, please hear me pray. Grant my brother or sister repentance because it breaks my heart to see them in sin. Don't let them continue in sin. Please pray this prayer. Pray for your loved ones. Pray for the people that you know that are lost in sin and perhaps 
God will have mercy upon them. We want to flee from sin. We don't want to toe the line to find out for ourselves when we will sin the sin unto death. We want to flee from sin. We want to run from it and not allow it to have any room in our lives. So the thrust of verses 16 and 17, we will focus on the sin leading, not leading to death because what is this? But John is more focused on the fact that if we see someone committing sin, that we would pray for them. He just got done talking about prayer. He's still talking about prayer. Pray for them. Don't rehearse how many sins they've committed this week to see, yeah, I bet they've already sinned the sin unto death. I bet they have. No, pray for that person. Ask for God to grant them repentance and to give them life. There's not a greater prayer that we could pray for someone than that the Lord would give them life. John addresses those of us who have already been given life in the next couple of verses. We have three statements of certainty that John makes. Three statements of certainty. Verse 18. Read it with me. Well, let me get there. Verse 18. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. But he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. Our first statement of certainty is that Christians do not live sinful lifestyles. Christians do not live sinful lifestyles. Where do we get that statement from? Verse 18. We know that everyone... Not pastors, not evangelists, not missionaries. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. Well, hold on. I thought we sin every day. I thought we were not perfect. You're absolutely right. Both of those statements are true. We don't don't live lives of perfection. None of us have. None of us will. That's not what John is saying. The way that it's written is that we don't live in a lifestyle of sin. Remember from Hebrews chapter 10 when he says, goes on deliberately sinning. In other words, if you, before you came to Christ, you had a porn addiction, you do not continue on in that now that you are in Christ. You put those things away. They are dead. If you had an issue with lust, you are dead to lust. If you had an issue with alcoholism, you're dead to alcoholism. If you had an issue with sexual immorality of any sort, you're dead to these things. You don't continue on in this life. If you lived a life of violence, if you lived a life of theft, if you lived a a life of anger, those things are now dead since you are in Christ. Will that rear its ugly head from time to time? Of course You live in the flesh. None of us are perfect. But you fight those things by the power of the Spirit. You don't keep on sinning because you've been born of God. Turn back to chapter 3. If you need more proof that we don't live in a state of rampant, high-handed, unrepentant, hard-hearted sin. 1 John chapter 3 verse 9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. And here he gives us the explanation for God's seed abides in him. And he cannot 
keep on sinning because he's been born of God. We don't live in our sin anymore. When we sin, it is atrocious to us and it breaks our heart. And we go to the Lord in prayer and we repent again. And we put faith in Christ again that it's only because of Christ that we stand justified before the Lord, not because of our good works. But just because we stand justified apart from our good works does not absolve us from good works. Did you hear me? Just because we have been justified apart from our good works does not absolve us from good works. We must live a life of good works, killing sin in our lives. Moreover, John's statement is even stronger because he's saying not just to fight sin, but that the Spirit in you will not allow you to keep sinning. Therefore, if you are here this morning and you have noticed that you live in a lifestyle of unrepentant sin, hear me as clearly as day today that is evidence that the Spirit is not in you. When you don't have any remorse for sin, when it doesn't hurt you, when it doesn't break your heart, when you don't feel conviction, when you're just numb to your sin, I would question if you've ever been born again to begin with. Not because I'm mean, but because John says that you don't go on sinning. If you've been born of God, you don't do it because you can't. That is the kicker. You do not because you cannot. The Spirit at work in you does not allow you. That's why there is a wrestle and a battle with sin in your life. You sin and you hate it and you fight it and you pray and you seek accountability and you ask your friends to please look out for you because you hate the life of sin. You hate those things being in your life. You want to please God. You want to honor God because He has set you free from these things. But you live in the flesh and your flesh is weak. That's why you pray. That's why your heart is broken. That's why you seek help. That is what the lifestyle of a Christian looks like. It's not that you don't sin. It's not that you don't even backslide. It's that you can't in a final, dug-in sort of way live a life of sinfulness if you've truly been born again. John Stott's commentary said it perfectly. Quote, Sin and the child of God are incompatible. They may occasionally meet. They cannot live together in harmony. End quote. You see that? They can't live together in harmony. I can't be this way because God's Spirit is in me. Look at verse 18 again. He does not keep on sinning, comma, but he who was born of God protects him and the evil one does not touch him. I love that. It's not that you finally figured out a way to stop sinning. It's not that you figured out the lifestyle of Christianity. It's not that you're perfect. It's not that anything credit to you. It's because he who was born of God protects you. It's because who is it that was born of God? It's the Son of God. It's Jesus Christ. It's because Jesus protects you. That's why. 
The only reason you stand here today and you're not still dead in your sin is because Jesus protects you and He holds you firmly in His hand and not even you can take you out of His hand. Not even you, not me, not even Satan himself. We aren't looking anymore to see how much sin we can get away with, remember, but how much we can get away from. We don't want it anymore. And this happens because we're protected by He who was born of God. John 17, 15, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. That's from Jesus' high priestly prayer. Keep them from the evil one. He writes here that the one who was born of God protects him and the evil one does not touch him. You know what that sounds like? Is that the prayer of Jesus Christ is answered. Jesus prayed, protect them from the evil one. And what happens is that every single Christian is protected from the evil one. This was the prayer of Jesus to the Father. And Jude confirms this for us as well. In verse 24, Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy. Wow. Presented blameless. You? Me? Presented blameless before God? That is all testimony to the power of God. What does this mean? Translated this way 33 times in the New Testament is touch him. The evil one does not touch him. It's translated this way 33 times in the New Testament and every, almost every time it's in the Gospels talking about Jesus touching and healing people. So what he's talking about here is not that Satan can't cause a ruckus in your life. It's not that Satan can't lure you and tempt you. It's not any of those things. It's that Satan cannot have you back. Satan can no longer have dominion over your life because you are Christ's. You belong to Him. This world is under the power and the authority of Satan. But you, as Jesus prayed, you are in the world that is controlled and run by Satan. So Satan can cause a ruckus in your life, but he cannot have you back. You now belong to Jesus. John 10, 28, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. Do you hear that? Christian, do you hear that? No one will snatch them out of my hand. Not even the evil one. Not you. No one. Secondly, the second statement of certainty is that the world lies in the power of the evil one. Verse 19. We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Do you see where I got my point from? It's basically just the verse. We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. This is right next to talking about Christians that don't keep on sinning. By contrast, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. 
Has anybody turned on the news lately? Anyone? Show of hands. Whether you get your news from social media or from the TV or from the newspaper, one thing is absolutely clear. It's a mess right now. It is an absolute disaster. Do you know why? Because the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Do you know why it seems like some people are being judged unfairly, some people are being canceled, and other people who are, there's just blatant hypocrisy everywhere, and and rampant sexual immorality, and all of these things going on. Do you know why? It's because the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. We should not be surprised when this world starts to fall apart. We should not be surprised that our own government seems to be against Christianity. We should not be surprised that our culture is so hateful against the gospel. Why? Because the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Do you want to know why we have gay marriage, transgenderism, and all of these things being widely accepted and celebrated? Why? Verse 19, because the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. That's why. Do you see, though, that you and I were left here? Jesus said, I don't pray that you would take them out of this world that lies in the power of the evil one, but that you would protect them from the power of the evil one. Why? Because you and I have a mission to be salt and light in the midst of darkness not to hide away in Christian corners, not to hide away in fear of the world, of the evil one. The evil one cannot touch us. We are safe in the palm of the hands of Almighty God. We were left here to be salt and light and to proclaim the gospel in the midst of a wicked and crooked generation. That's what you and I are here for. Think it not strange when they hate you because of it. Think it not strange when you lose friends. Think it not strange when when people don't want to talk to you anymore. Think it not strange when people are angry at you. Why? What did Jesus say? They hated me first. They're going to hate you. If they don't hate you, I would ask why. I would ask, am I being salt and light? Disclaimer, this does not mean go and try to make everyone hate you. This doesn't mean that you cannot be liked by people. But you know what it does mean? Is that whenever there is an opportunity, you stand for truth. In the workplace, in your home, in your family, you stand for the truth. You are not of this world. You are just in this world. And you are in this world as salt and light. And what happens when salt loses its saltiness? It's thrown away, isn't it? We don't want that to be us. But we want to understand that the world lies in the power of the evil one. Therefore, we must fight against all of our own inclinations to live lives of worldliness. Isn't that what John wrote earlier? That if anyone loves the world, the world of the love of the Father is not in him. I believe it's in chapter 2. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. We don't want to love the things of this world. We want to plead that people would come out of this world 
and come into eternal life. Lastly, or third, Jesus Christ is the Son of God and through Him we know God, verse 20. Our third statement of certainty, verse 20. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true and we are in Him who is true, in His Son Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. This is a haymaker statement to all of John's adversaries at this time because they thought all kinds of crazy things about Jesus. And what does John say? Jesus Christ came. He's the Son of God. And He's the only true God. And He's the only one who has eternal life. Period. End of discussion. It is a sad reality that even pastors today are saying that there are more ways to God than one. That's a lie from the pit of hell. There is one way to God. His name is Jesus Christ. It is through repenting and putting our faith in Christ that you and I are saved. No credit to you. No credit to me. All credit, all glory, all honor to Jesus Christ. Our third statement of certainty here is that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Let us reemphasize in our minds and our hearts that we have not opened our own eyes. We have not given ourselves life. We have not escaped the power of the evil one on our own. We have not come to know the truth based off of our own intelligence. No. What does he say? That the Son of God came. He gave us understanding. Why? So that we would know God, the true God and have eternal life through Him. The truth that the Christian life is founded upon is that Christ has given us life by coming to die for us. Christ has given us life by coming to die for us. We learned last week that to have eternal life is to know God. And we have that restated for us here. So we would know God, the true God, who is the true God and eternal Life. To have Christ is to have the Father. To have the Father is to have the eternal life. He's the true God and eternal life. Why don't we continue in sin like the rest of the world? Because Christ has come to snatch us out of our sinfulness. And we are now firmly fixed in the palm of His hand where the evil one cannot snatch us out. To know Christ is to know life. But know Christ, know Life. Without Christ, there is no life. It doesn't matter how big a smile a person may wear, how great a life they may seem to live. Without Jesus Christ, you are spiritually dead and bankrupt. Because the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. What is your solution? Is to run to the cross of Calvary, to put all your faith in Christ and Him alone for salvation. Our final exhortation is to keep ourselves from idols. Look at verse 21. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. This is, there's only 11 imperative verbs in this letter. Imperative verbs are typically commands. There are not very many in 1 John is the point. So it's odd that John would end his letter 
with a command, keep yourselves from idols. Why would this be? Because you and I have a tendency to hear that Christ does everything, God does everything, He saved me, it's because of Him, it's because of Him, and yes and amen it is, but that does not absolve you and I from personal responsibility. You have a responsibility to keep yourself from idols. What is an idol? Anything you put before God. What is an idol? Anything you put before God. What does that mean? That it could be your marriage. That it could be your family. That it could be your job. That it could be literally anything that you put before obedience and love to God. Where do we get that from? Is from the Ten Commandments. Have no other gods from before me. Isn't that what he says? Have no other gods before me. What does Jesus say the greatest commandment is? Love the Lord your God with all your mind, heart, soul, strength. So to not do those things in exchange for anything else is to worship an idol. John Calvin famously said that the human mind is, so to speak, a perpetual forge of idols. That our hearts are an idol factory. And we will idolize anything the most innocent of things. So the final charge that John leaves this church with, and by extension, you and I and all Christians everywhere, is to keep ourselves from our heart's natural inclination to put something else before God. How do we do that? Obey the rest of this letter. Walk in communion with the Lord. Walk in love with your neighbors with people in the church, other Christians. Obey the commands of God. Every day, commit yourself anew to this. Every single day, Sunday through Sunday, every day, commit yourself over again and over again and over again. Let not one of us begin to think that we are too godly, too pious, or too devout a Christian to fall prey to idolatry in our heart. Instead, with all of the strength we can muster, let us fight against our own bent towards rebellion and pursue Christ, for it is He who has the power to keep us from the evil one. Let's stand. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank You for testing us according to Your Word. We thank You, Lord, for keeping us from the evil one, that it is by your power, not ours, because we know that our flesh is weak, Lord. Our flesh is weak as water, but the Spirit is willing and the Spirit is mighty within us. So, Father, I pray for confidence in you for all of the believers in this place today, that we would be confident in the work of Christ, not in our own work, but that Christ is at work within us, that we would cling to Christ, and that we would submit ourselves afresh to his work in our life for your glory. We pray for this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Grace, peace, and mercy to you all.